peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1, 4 through 8. Pray with me, Father, I pray that as we dive into this book that you would uh, illuminate our minds and inflame our hearts. I pray that we would have a fresh vision of Jesus Christ and it would change the way that we live forever. So in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, if you would, please turn to Revelation chapter 1 begin our study of the book of Revelation this morning, I want to ask you students especially a question. I want you to imagine for just a moment that as you're walking out of here, someone handed to you every answer for every question, for every exam that you would ever take for your entire career at Texas A&M University. I thought I'd get a whoop for that, right? Just imagine that. I mean, even, even just imagining that, just how, how amazing would that be? Wouldn't that be life-altering for you, right? Every answer for every question, for every exam that you'd ever take for your entire year at Texas A&M University, would, would that change your life? I'm, I'm guessing that you might study those answers, right? It, it might, you might study just those and nothing else. I'm wondering, um, would you give the answers to your friends? Would you sell them? To strangers? Would you relax a little bit? Would you be able just to, just to relax and enjoy life a bit? Because you'd know exactly what's coming next. And I want to extrapolate a little bit. Imagine that someone handed to you every answer for every question, for every challenge and difficulty that you'd face in life for the rest of your life. Imagine that you, you, you know the future, you know what's coming, and you know the right response. How would that change the way that you live today? I would argue that knowing the future would actually dramatically affect the way that we live today. And in fact, uh, we do know the future. It's, it's written for us in black and white. Maybe not every single detail of all of uh, the particulars of your life or my life, but we do know where the story's going and where the story is going to end. And God's given it to us, not to kind of fulfill some morbid curiosity that we might have about the future and all the details, but so that it would change the way that we live today, so that it would change our priorities, it would change the way that we think and choose and act and speak and feel because we know what God is going to bring to us next. So as we begin our study of the book of Revelation, what I would like to highlight for you is three, what I would argue are, are life-altering truths from the revelation of Jesus Christ. So read with me, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ 
even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So three life-altering truths. Okay, I need to get the uh, slides back again if I can. The first is this. The revelation of Jesus Christ teaches us what will happen in the future. Okay? Most plainly, the revelation is about the future. Notice John starts and he says, this is a revelation. Literally in Greek, it's an apocalypse, right? That is, it's, it's an unveiling. God gave it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to an angel. The angel transmitted it to John, and now John is giving it to us. And what God is doing through this revelation is he is unveiling. He's pulling back the veil on the future, and he's showing us what's going to happen next. Now, because it is a, an apocalypse, that is, it is an unveiling, John is going to receive a, a vision of the future. In other words, John doesn't, John doesn't do time travel, right? John's not going into the future. John's getting a vision of the future, right? He's being uh, shown, uh, uh, this is a, an image of what is going to happen, not you're in that moment. So I want you to, if you can, just kind of picture the book of Revelations we begin to study as sort of a cosmic drama that's being played out for John. So imagine we're going to have a, a, a scene on, on the right and a scene on the left. You're going to have uh, scenes in heaven and then scenes on the earth. And you're going to move back and forth as the drama plays out in front of John. He's going to get a window into what's transpiring in heaven as events are going on on earth. And the events on earth are going to be moving kind of sequentially through this process of, of God reestablishing his kingdom upon earth. And then like a drama, we're going to have an intermission. There's going to be a pause and we're going to see what heaven's doing. Or we're going to have a, a, a forecasting a preview of what's going to happen, or we're going to have a recapitulation, and then we're going to go back to the main action, right? And what we'll do as we study the book of John is we'll keep reminding ourselves, here's where we are in the story, and here's what's happening. Are we moving from the scenes in heaven to the scenes upon earth? Are we taking an intermission? And what's going to happen for John is he's going to be given this drama played out in, in very cosmic terms, and he's going to have, uh, have to use really dramatic language, symbolic language because again he's not in the future he's being given a vision of the future and sometimes people get scared away from the book of revelation because the language is symbolic but what you'll notice if you just slow down and read is that often the visions are explained actually right there in the context or they're explained by the allusions that they are in the Old Testament. We go back to the Old Testament, we see, no, it's, it's actually plain. So notice what he says here, verse one, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants or to make plain. God's not trying to hide his will in all of the imagery. He's trying to make his will plain through the imagery. So for example, book of Revelation, we're gonna see some beasts, some really crazy, gnarly looking beasts. And we go, what are those things? Well, we go back to Daniel and we discover the beasts are nations. But they, they refer to something very literal. John's seeing an image of a beast because it reflects something of the character of that nation, but there's a literal reference. It's a, it's a nation. So we'll notice in each of the contexts that what's happening is an unveiling, a revelation, or as you'll call it in verse 3, this is a, it's a prophecy. It's about the future. Now, next week, as we get into chapters 2 and 3, we'll talk about different approaches people have to the book of Revelation. But I'm going to argue it is essentially, it is predictive 
in nature. It's about the future. And I would argue that we're actually given an outline of the book of Revelation in verse 19 of chapter 1. Read with me there. Jesus speaking to John, he says, Therefore write the things which you have seen, and write the things which are, and write the things which will take place after these things. So the outline of Revelation looks basically like this. The things which you have seen, that's chapter 1. The things which are, that's the message to the seven churches. The things which will take place, that's chapters 4 through 22. In other words, the vast majority of the book is in fact about the future. And it's about a very specific future that God will bring to pass. Read with me again, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. From him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom and priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. It is specific. It's a specific revelation. It is the revelation about how God will reestablish his kingdom and his authority over earth. From Genesis 3 onward, the entire narrative of the Bible up until this point John tells us the whole world lies under the dominion or the authority of the evil one. Satan had introduced sin into the world and it had affected every single person. It had affected all of creation. And the book of Revelation is about God taking over again, reestablishing his kingdom and his authority on earth through Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hold your place here in Revelation. This is where we're going to be for this semester. But I would like for you to turn back to the book of Daniel with me. Daniel chapter 2. And you may want to mark the book of Daniel with you know, one of your ribbons or fold down a page because we will be back and forth in the book of Daniel a lot. A lot of the imagery that you'll see emerging from uh, in the book of Revelation comes from the book of Daniel. So we'll flip back there a fair amount. So Daniel chapter two. And I want you to read with me in verse 44. Daniel is has been given a revelation, he's been told, what Nebuchadnezzar's dream means. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream is about kingdoms and about the future. And he wraps up in verse 44 like this. He says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms, but will itself endure forever. Where is history going? History is going to this point where God reestablishes his kingdom on earth. How's he going to do it, and to, through whom will he do it? Chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. There will be a final kingdom. It will be the kingdom of God on earth. There will not be a kingdom after that kingdom. 
It is a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. This is where God is moving human history. In particular, Daniel is wondering, Lord, Lord, when are you going to do this and how are you going to do this? And particularly, you've made promises to the nation of Israel that you'll establish a kingdom for them and from their kingdom, you will bless all of the nations upon the earth. But right now, Lord, we are living in exile. How are you going to do this thing? And Daniel is told, Daniel, it's coming. And Daniel, it's coming very soon. Zechariah was writing near the same time, shortly after Daniel, and he made uh, this observation. He said, I will pour out, the Lord said, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Zechariah was speaking the words of the Lord and he was reminding the people even though they didn't know it, they would actually miss the first coming of their king Messiah who would establish his rule and reign over all of the earth, but the second time they would see it. And in the book of Revelation, during the tribulation period, we see that, Jesus returning and Israel repenting. And in fact, that's the moment that all nations begin to see that Jesus is in fact king of kings and lord and lords. I'll turn back to Revelation chapter one with me. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be, amen. The revelation of Jesus Christ is about the kingdom that God will establish on earth through Jesus, and it is absolutely and utterly certain that it will come to pass. Read with me again, verse four. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, what did you notice in those uh, two verses? Who's there? It's the Trinity. They all show up, right? They, in John chapter one, John says, this is a message. It's, it's from Jesus. It's also about Jesus, but it's also from the Father and the Spirit and the Son. Notice again what he says. Uh, from him who is and who was and from him who is to come. Verse eight, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It comes from the Father. Well, this is an allusion to Exodus chapter three, verse 14, God, God said to Moses, I, who, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Remember, Moses was asking, God, when I go to the sons of Israel and say that you're their God and you're going to deliver them, they're gonna wanna know your name, what's your name? And God says, well, the simplest way to express who I am is, I am. I am, I was, I am, I will come. I'm alpha and omega, I'm first and last, I'm beginning and end. There's nothing before me, there's nothing after me. That means I know all of human history and I direct all of human history. John is also making an allusion to Isaiah chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord who commands the armies, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me, I'm it. I'm it, I, I see all of history, I direct all of human history, I am God, eternal. There is no other God beside me. Notice John goes on 
from him who is and who was and who is to come, but also from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Why, why does John describe the spirit as seven spirits? There aren't seven spirits, right? There's just one spirit. That's an allusion to the book of Zechariah, chapter four. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which constantly range across the entire earth. Seven is the number of perfection. The Spirit is described as having seven eyes. That is, he sees all things perfectly. He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. He knows everything about your life and my life. He knows the mind of God, and he's in agreement with the mind of God. The Father and the Spirit are in agreement with one another. Third, the Son shows up. From him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, but also from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That is, Jesus Christ, the faithful one who bore witness. He accomplished what God called him to accomplish. He was obedient in going to the cross. Therefore, God raised him from the dead and he becomes the firstborn of the dead. Colossians 1.18, that is, he is uh, the new humanity, resurrected and glorified, what we can expect that we will become. We don't know as yet what we will be, but we will know that we will be like him. He's the firstborn or the ruler over the resurrected family of God. And he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. In allusion to Psalm chapter two, he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now, why does John take the time to stop and deliver this lengthy address as he introduces the book to remind us that what he's about to say is utterly and completely reliable. It's from the Father, it's from the Spirit, it's from the Son. All are in agreement, this is the will of God. It's been the will of God for all of eternity. When things got broken by us, God promised that he would set all things right. It will come to pass. So can you trust him? In the midst of your, your trials and your tribulations and your fears and your anxieties and your, your, your anxiousness about today and tomorrow, can you trust him? Can you trust him uh, with your future? Can you trust him with your health? Can you trust him with your career? Can you trust him with your family? Can you trust him with your children, with your spouse? Can you trust him with your relationships? Can you trust him with everything? Him who is and who was and who is to come, who sees all of history, who's directing all of history, who will reestablish his authority, his benevolent, kind rule on earth. John writes, you can trust him. So the first thing we learn, life-altering truth, is what will happen in the future. The book of Revelation is about the reestablishment of God's kingdom, his rule and reign on earth. Second, Revelation of Jesus Christ teaches us who will bring God's kingdom on earth. So John starts, he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which means revelation from Jesus, but also revelation about Jesus. The book of Revelation is showing us something about Jesus by showing us what Jesus will do. So notice with me, verse 9, John goes on. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. 
And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So here's the setting of the book of Revelation. It's about uh, AD 95. It's near the end of the first century. John is a very old man by this time. He's probably... Uh, in his 90s. And because he was faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, he had been persecuted throughout his entire adult life. Even at one point, he was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil to kill him, but he, he survived that somehow. And now where he finds himself is he, he's banished. Right? He's, he's punished. He was exiled to the island of Patmos, which is just this rocky outcropping. So he's on the island of Patmos, and it's Sunday. Right? It's, it's the Lord's day. It's a day of worship. And so John is going before the Lord and he's, he's seeking God's face and he's quietly listening for the voice of the Spirit to speak to him. And then out of nowhere, he hears a voice that just sounds, it sounds like a trumpet. It's just, you know, he's just trying to listen to the voice of the Spirit. And what he hears is this, this blast, this voice that is, this, it's overwhelmingly loud. And it shakes him and it rattles him. Now, this, you may not know this about me, but I love, I love music. I am not a, I'm not a musician. Um, I can play three chords on the guitar, and I took piano lessons like all of you did, and, um, you know, and, I, and I hated it, but I do love music. And I think Spotify is amazing because I can listen to all the different kinds of music that I like, right? I can listen to uh, classic rock. Because <laughs> that's my generation. But what's funny is my kids know more classic rock than I do, right? Because they, they just dig into everything. Well, uh, I love classic rock. I like jazz. I like blues. I like folk music. I like some country. Uh, but I actually also, I like, I like uh, classical music. I like symphonies. And I like going to the symphony. I like the experience of the symphony. And when I was living in Prague, because the Iron Curtain had just come down, the symphony, the, the national symphony was still subsidized. So I could go to the symphony for like $2, you know, and here the National Symphony in this beautiful, amazing building. And, you know, I remember sitting there thinking, huh, you know, I, again, I'm, duh, I don't know anything about symphonies and orchestras. I am playing an orchestra or anything, but I thought, okay, they're always arranged the same way. And, and yesterday as I was reading uh, this, this passage, I thought, okay, why are they, why are, I just, you know, this is where my mind is going. I, I, I confessed to our worship team this morning, I was very scattered this week. Well, this is what happened. I was scattered. I thought, well, why are, why are symphonies arranged like symphonies are arranged? Because I saw the word trumpet, and, trumpet in the, and so my mind's just kind of chasing after that. And so I, I, I Googled it, and I learned something that you symphony people already know, but the, 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 the horns are always in the back. Right? Trumpets and trombones are always in the back. And the reason that they're in the back is because if they're in the front, you can't hear any of the other instruments. It just drowns it out. And so I have this theory that all of the, the little you know, string violin players, they're probably all deaf because they've got horns just constantly just blaring in their ears, right? Full throttle, full throttle. And you need to understand that, that in, the, in the throne room of God, it's always loud, right? Then there might be a moment of quiet contemplation, but there's a lot going on. There's, 
There's smoke and lights. There's, there's, there's loud sounds and there are choirs and there's worship and there's beauty and there's brilliance. And John is startled and he hears a voice, but the voice is like the sound of a, a trumpet blaring. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. So John was arguably Jesus' best friend on earth. They had walked miles together. They sat on the ground together. They'd eaten meals together. They'd become hungry together and thirsty together. They had slept out in the open together. They had, uh, he had seen Jesus preach. Jesus had sent him out to preach. They were uh, close, close personal friends. He's the one who laid on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. He's called the beloved disciple. Jesus was his closest friend. He was arguably Jesus' closest friend. And now what happens in this moment is he sees Jesus entirely different. He sees his best friend clothed in beauty and brilliance. This is the robe of, of a priest. He sees Jesus standing amongst seven golden lampstands. This is kind of the first symbolic mystery that will be explained to him later. But there is his best friend, Jesus. But he doesn't look just like his best friend. He's clothed in, in brilliant garments of a priest. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, which is a, a, a depiction of his, his wisdom and his dignity. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His eyes were, were piercing. He has insight and discernment and judgment. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. That is, his, his feet are, are brilliant. They're beautiful. They reflect his strength. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. It was like a trumpet. It was like many waters. And that, that description in particular, uh, it caught my attention. Uh, because when I was growing up, my parents took me. We lived in New York, and they took me to Niagara Falls. And some of you haven't been to Niagara Falls before, but you need to go. You can actually do a, do a boat tour at the bottom of the falls. And you have to wear a raincoat because you're going to get completely drenched and drowned. The other thing that struck me, even as a child, was you can't have a conversation. When you're down there, all that you hear is, it's just a roar. So John can discern the words specifically that are being spoken to him, but it's this overwhelming sensory experience, and it is absolutely beautiful. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. One of the things that you'll notice about the book of Revelation as we go through is there aren't a lot of quotes from the Old Testament, but there's allusion after allusion after allusion. Isaiah chapter 11, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and his, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. That is, he will execute justice and judgment on the earth. He will protect the poor. He will protect the vulnerable. He will protect those 
who have been taken advantage of. He will execute justice and righteousness. And notice, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. What did Moses look like when he came out from the presence of the Lord? We're told that literally his face glowed, and it glowed so much that the Israelites said, could you put a veil over that? You're scary. You realize every, every created being that moves into proximity, the glory of God is physically changed. It physically changed by being in the presence of God. M- Moses, he glowed, right? his body glowed. Daniel will tell us later that the righteous ones will actually shine like the stars of the heaven. Why? Because we're in proximity with God. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration was described like this. He was transfigured, changed completely before them. His face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. Now what struck me as I read this is that there's just absolutely no way I can do justice to that description. But for John, when, when he saw Jesus, his friend, crucified, resurrected, glorified, it was a complete reset for his life. And my hope and my prayer has been throughout this week that as we, we read this, and hopefully as you go back this week and you read it and you reflect on it and you see who Jesus actually is, crucified, resurrected, glorified, as he now is in his beauty and his brilliance, that it would be life altering. I want you to notice, again, I told you we would have allusions to Daniel. Listen to Daniel's description of God the Father in Daniel 7. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. You notice that John borrowed language from Daniel of God the Father to describe Jesus. Why is that? Because Jesus is God. Jesus would say to Thomas, Thomas, have you been with me so long and you don't really understand who I am? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. To the Pharisees who were arguing with him, he wrapped up his discussion by saying this, you know, before Abraham was born, I am. From him who is and who was and who is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, Jesus always existed. And now, having taken on human flesh so that he could be crucified, but raised up because he was obedient, having paid the penalty of our sin, and now glorified, God has said, he is the one who will sit on the throne. And John has given a vision, not just of what will happen in the future, but who will bring it to pass. Can you trust him? Can you trust him with your entire life? John gives this overwhelmingly powerful depiction of what he has seen in the best that his words can convey so that we will trust that God's plan is perfect and it will, in fact, come to pass. So, book of Revelation teaches us what's going to happen. It teaches us who will bring it to pass, who will bring God's kingdom. And then finally, the revelation of Jesus Christ teaches us how we should live today. Verse 17, John writes, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And then he reached out and he touched me. He placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, 
And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. I think it's easy for us to be really reductionist in our concept of worship. Worship, sometimes in our minds, it's, it's this short, maybe 15, 20, 30 minutes of our day when we come on Sunday or you go Tuesday night to break away and we just sing songs and we reduce the concept of worship to uh, singing together in a group of other Christians. But worship is, uh, it's, it's literally, it's proclaiming worth or it's proclaiming that something is the most worthy in our lives. Or wor- worship is designed to be your entire life. And what John chapter 1 or Revelation chapter 1 can do for us is it can give us this, this reset where we remember there are other affections in our lives, there are other things that we enjoy. We have, we have hobbies, we have interests, we have relationships, we have people that we love, but there's only one thing that can be preeminent, right? Only one thing or person can hold first place in our lives. That's what we actually worship. And what happens to John in this moment is he gets this dramatic reset for his life. And when he sees the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ, he falls on his face. And in fact, every time someone is given a glimpse of the glory of God, what happens? They hit the deck because they realize there's, there's nothing and there's no one like Jesus. That's, that's worship. And my prayer for us as we go through this is that the book of Revelation would create for us this, this really powerful reset in our lives. That other, other affections, we can hold to them, but they, they subside in their grip upon us. And that once again, Jesus becomes absolutely and completely preeminent in our lives. Jesus goes on speaking, verse 19. He says, therefore, John, write. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus says, let me explain to you that first mystery. God gave the revelation, the unveiling to Jesus. Jesus, I want you to tell what's going to happen in the future. Jesus gave it to an angel to communicate it to John. John gives that revelation to us. And John tells us, as Jesus is unveiling the future, he's standing in your midst. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Seven churches are representative, I believe, of Churches, the number seven being the number of perfection. There's seven literal local churches. And where is Jesus? Jesus is, is present with them. I want you to grasp that for a moment. There's universal church. That's every believer, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation across the face of the whole earth from all generations. That's the universal church. But there are also local churches. There are local churches that are worshiping right now here in Bryan College Station and throughout the state of Texas and the United States and throughout uh, North America and South America and all of the continents in Europe and Asia. And there are people who are worshiping in local communities. They're gathering together and Jesus is there. Okay, so right now, Jesus is present in our midst through his spirit. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to unveil. He's trying to reveal himself and his kingdom and his plan and his program so that we would live different lives, so that we would rearrange our lives. And I feel like we're in a generation right now where as much as any time ever, our sense of identity and purpose is just completely under attack. Where do you, where do you root your sense of identity and purpose and meaning in life? 
Let me tell you, if you're rooted in anything other than Jesus Christ and his kingdom, it's going to be unstable. It's going to be shaken. So if your sense of identity and meaning and purpose and life is rooted in your physical appearance, which we live in a very very image-oriented society, a very sexualized society, and if your image and, and identity and sense of purpose is in your physical image and your health and your strength and your beauty, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to get uglier. Okay? Everybody does. Age, age affects everyone the same way. And no matter how much money you invest in plastic surgery and supplements, you will get uglier. That's just your reality check for the morning. If your identity and sense of meaning and purpose is in your intellect, you know where I'm going. You're going to get dumber. You're going you're to forget faces. You're going to forget names, right? Everybody over 50 is going, oh, man, yeah, I go in the grocery store. I know you. I know you. I can't remember your name. You might get to the point you're going to forget your own name. I mean, it's just, this is what happens. If your sense of identity and meaning and purpose is rooted in your career, your company's going to downsize, you're going to lose a job, or you're just going to retire, and you're going to be done. And when you retire, they're going to give you a plaque that no one ever looks at. <laughs> and if your identity and meaning and purpose is in your wealth, you know what's going to happen? You're going to take all of that wealth, and you're going to hand it to your children. <laughs> what are they going to do with it? You don't know. And then they're going to hand it to their children and their children, and by which time it's all gone. It's gone. But if your sense of identity and meaning and purpose is rooted in Jesus Christ and his kingdom, it cannot be shaken. He hands to us a kingdom, he says, which cannot be shaken. Everything else in your life can be shaken. And I'm telling you, the world is constantly calling out to you and saying, put your identity here, put your identity here, put your identity here. And in fact, what you'll notice, the whole Bible, what it's about, it's about these kingdoms that are in conflict who are vying for your allegiance. That's what the Bible is about. It's a story of, of conflict. What will be the first love in your life? What will be your first loyalty in your life? How will you order your life? Will it be around Jesus and his kingdom? If so, you have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When your health fails, you have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When your mind begins to go, you have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When your career is gone, you have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When your wealth is gone, you have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It cannot be shaken if you hold to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So you don't have to live in fear and anxiety because you have Jesus Christ. You have certainty about what's going to transpire in the future. So notice what he says in verse 5. He says, he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. He has made us to be a kingdom. When Jesus Christ comes back and he establishes his kingdom on earth, he begins to rule and reign again, his creation, and he's putting it back in the way it was meant to be. And there are no more tears and sorrow, and there's no more frustration and anger, and there's no more thorns and thistles coming up. He says, I want you to be with me, and you will rule and reign. Church, that's your destiny. To be doing things that bring you satisfaction and fulfillment with people that you enjoy, not in conflict, but in harmony, you will rule and reign with Jesus forever. He says, you will be a kingdom. You will also be priest to his God. That is, you'll worship him, but also you will mediate his blessings to others. That's your calling. And for some of you, you walked in here kind of like me, and there were just a million distractions on your mind. There are all kinds of things going on in your life, and what God's trying to do in this moment, he's trying to clear away those distractions for you and for me and remind you that in spite of all of the challenges and the frustrations and the sufferings, that Jesus has a better 
perfect future planned. And so for some of us, as we walked in here, we said, okay, yeah, but, but when? <sighs> I'm weary. Jesus, are we there yet? What does he say? Verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Verse three, blessed is he who reads and then the one who heeds or hears and reorients his life around the things that are written in it because the time is near. If our understanding is correct, Jesus is right at the door. What's going to be described in Revelation could be unleashed at any moment. It could start at any moment. So as we shared last week, Second Peter chapter 3, this Peter, uh, people in Peter's day were wrestling with the same thing. Peter reminded him, he said, so do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow, actually, about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. People were saying in Peter's day, which was only, you know, a couple decades after Jesus' resurrection, where's the promise of his coming? Where's the promise of his coming? When is he going to set all things right? And now we're 2,000 years at, late, later than that, and Peter would say the same thing to us at any moment. At any moment. His coming is near. Therefore, are you living wisely? Are you ready? Have you arranged your life as if this is true? And for those of you who are a little bit older, you've probably read uh, with me Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey, right? One of the, one of the, great personal self-leadership books. Um, I'd encourage you, it's an old book, but uh, it's still really worth, worth reading. And one of the things Covey introduced uh, to, the, to the world was uh, these quadrants of uh, urgency and importance, right? So he, he made the a little quadrant. One axis, urgency, one axis, importance. And there are things in your life that are uh, really, really urgent, but they're not important. These are all of the problems that your friends bring you, right? The monkey they want to put on your back that uh, it feels really urgent to them, but that's your crisis. It's not my crisis. And you know what I'm talking about, or maybe you're the person who dumps. I don't know, but it's really urgent, but it's not that important. Then there are things that are important, but they're really not urgent. Eating well, sleeping well, exercising. You know, I can put all that off. I don't have to do it today. I'll do it tomorrow. Well, I'm not going to do it tomorrow. I'll do it, but, you know, and it's, it's important, but it's really not urgent. And if I put it off, I don't really notice the effects of it today. But, I, but if I want to really invest wisely, I should. And there are things that are not urgent and they're not important. And that's, you know, I'm watching TikTok videos for four hours a day. Or, and I want to appeal to all generations here, if you're over 35, you're checking your email. And you're checking your email over and over and over again. You're not watching TikTok, but you're checking your emails, and you're looking for all those diet miracles that will allow you to not eat well, sleep well, and exercise, and still get away with it, right? So you're just burning time. And then there are things that are both urgent and they are important. What John is saying here in Revelation chapter 1 is, this is urgent and this is important. And there's really nothing else that's urgent and important in your life than arranging your life around Jesus Christ and his kingdom and getting completely reoriented. Because all other allegiances, all other affections, all other kingdoms will fail. Everything else will fail. In fact, we're told in the prophets, Jesus, God says, once more again, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And everything that's not attached to the kingdom of God will just fly off. 
So, how do we apply this? Well, just a couple things I want you to, to think about and meditate on this week. Uh, here we are. We are in the Lord's day. As John was in the Lord's day, and John slowed down, and he stopped, and he just listened for the voice of the Spirit. And what I want you to do uh, this week is, is take another time apart from Sunday just to slow down and listen. What is it that God's Spirit is speaking to you? If Jesus Christ really is King of kings, Lord of lords, sovereign over the universe, can you trust him today? Can you trust him with your tomorrow? Can you trust him with your health? Can you trust him uh, with your career, with your friendships, with your relationships? Can you trust him with your family? Can you trust him with your wealth? Can you trust him with your time? Can, can you trust him if, if this is who Jesus Christ really is? If Jesus is going to return, he's going to establish his kingdom on, on earth, what are the affections in your life, the allegiances that maybe need to be rearranged so that, that Jesus is in fact preeminent? And I want you to take some time this week and just have time quietly, silently before the Lord and ask God's Spirit to speak to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that it is your intention to speak to us. I thank you that you, you want us to live lives that are as you designed, full of, full of meaning and purpose, full of peace, not anxiety, faith, not fear, joy, and gladness, deep and rich relationships with others who are moving the same direction. I pray, Father, that you bring a sense of, of just insight through your spirit so we would know the things in our lives that need to change so that we can live the life you've called us to. Father, I thank you for this vision that you gave to John, and I pray that it would just leap off the page to us in a really dramatic and powerful way and change the way that we live today. It's in Jesus' name that we give thanks. Amen.